I'm Demelo Roberts, stage and studio on ArtsWatch. We're listening to the opening moment of No-No Girl. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph so help us God. On February 19, 1942, FDR signed Executive Order 9066, an order that sent more than 100,000 Japanese Americans to concentration camps during World War II. To commemorate Remembrance Day on February 19th, Portland's Japanese American Citizens League will screen a new film called No No Girl. The director, Paul Daisuke Goodman, and actors Chris Tashima and Mika Joe will be there for a talkback as well. Nona Girl follows a Japanese-American family as they uncovered buried family history. It's literal in this film. The family discovers their grandparents had buried their valuables in the backyard of their home, but they never recovered them when they came back from the camps because their home was taken from them during World War II. One daughter decides to find out exactly what was buried in the backyard. With me to talk about No No Girl is Paul Daisuke Goodman. And uh, I just want to welcome you to Stage and Studio on Arts Watch. It's so good to meet you. Hi. Thank you for having me. And you're in Glendale right now in your office where you do all your creative magic, right? Yes, you can say that. I, I like to think my office is, you know, creative magic. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> so I had a chance to see the screener. Thank you for sending that to me of No No Girl. And geez, what a film and what a story. Paul, for people who might not know the story of No No's, would you briefly describe like who the No No's during World War II were? Sure. The term No No is, is very triggering and iconic you know, in the Japanese American community, it really describes this group of people. Really, well, all Japanese Americans during that time were forced to make a really absurd choice. They had to sign these loyalty questionnaires assigned by the government, and they had all these ridiculous questions on it. You know, they're all American citizens, or most of them were American citizens, and they had to prove, you know, questions 27 and 28 specifically were the ones that caused so much controversy and ripped families apart and took people and put them in terrible prison camps. It was, um, will you fight for the American government and will you forsake all loyalty to the emperor of Japan and to the Japanese empire? And those two questions really caused a lot of chaos because what are you supposed to say to that? You know, I never had a loyalty to any Japanese emperor, but I'm supposed to forsake that now? Is this a trick question? You know, and then just the indignity of it all to just have to prove your American citizenship just because of how you look. And for those that answered no and no to these questions, where most Japanese Americans answered yes and yes, those answered no and no were labeled as no-nos, not just within the Japanese American community, but outside the community as well. And they were sent to uh, Tule Lake or um, other harsher concentration camps as a result of the, those answers. I mean, it, it really was a trick question because, and, and so many people did decide not to sign them and they were punished for it. 
And I love that you took that experience and the name of Nonos and 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 made the protagonist a girl, right? An, a young woman who takes the first steps in recovering some of this lost family history. When did you decide that that's how you wanted to focus the story? I think the title of Nono Girl kind of, it's a multi-gener, it, it means a lot within the context of the story and, you know, and why I chose it, but it's to represent a multi-generational trauma and a multi-generational family that's portrayed in the film. You know, it's not just Bachan, it's our main character's mom and it's her, our main character as well. All three represent what happened to the Japanese, the, the, the tears of trauma that each generation, each, you know, Issei, Nisei, Sansei, Yonsei have experienced rippling out from the incarceration. So I think to address the no no girl aspect is not just it's not just Sue, our main character. It's all of the women in her life and all of the stories that she's heard or not heard that she has to kind of discover the truths on her own. Yeah, it really is a multi-generational story. I understand also the film represents some of your own experiences as a Yonsei or fourth generation Japanese American. Definitely. I mean, so many moments in the movie are taken from my life and and from my family and friends and my friends' families and my community. There's even all the locations, the props. You know, I feel like something that I'm really proud about our film is that I feel it feels really authentic because the people, the places, the story, the costumes, the wardrobe, the props, props, all of it are real and real in the context of what we're using it as. You know, like we have a scene where we show flashbacks throughout the film of life in the camps and post camps. And, you know, our main character is discovering these letters and we're seeing flashbacks to the time of the letters being written and and the trauma of that. But we have scenes that show characters uh, in the 442nd and how they're coming home and interacting with our character. I don't want to say too much about the film, but the wardrobe of the 442nd is authentic. That's my Ji-chan's jacket that our character was wearing in the film. And when he opens the door and stands there for our Bachan character, you know, my mom is, is standing in the room behind um, the director's monitor with me watching it. And we both get this eerie feeling of seeing essentially this character playing our Jichan, playing the Jichan of the character. And, you know, there's so many layers of what was happening, but it was all brought to real life in that moment because he was wearing the 442nd military uniform with the gopher broke patch that was hand-stitched by my Jichan on his, on his shoulder. And that was all real. It was real in the film and it was really happening in real life. And a lot of moments like that in the film that I can point to that and say, you know, exactly how they were feeling there. That's how we were filming while we were watching it. I could really tell that, you know, there was attention to authenticity. And and so often when you're watching films that are not produced, directed by an Asian American, and they represent a certain time of Asian American history, I've seen in movies where it's supposed to be 1920s and they're using plastic bowls that you, you recognize. You yeah. Know? You're going, hey, <laughs> that's not what it was like back then, you know? Mm -hmm. So I really appreciated that. It, it did feel very real and very authentic and also very personal. 
And just the way a lot of the actors would hold a certain object really felt like there was an investment of meaning there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, like in the food scenes. Yeah. And I'm I'm also thinking in terms of uh, casting too, all the um, the family members were Japanese American. Mm-hmm. And I would like you to tell us why that is so important for authenticity too, particularly to this history. I don't think it was my intention from the get-go to say every actor needs to be Japanese American. I put the casting call out there for East Asian and and we got a broad spectrum of applicants and I reviewed each one, you know, with the casting team. But there wasn't, you know, there's no there was no strict needs to be Japanese American. I just we got so many I was so surprised by how many people responded to our casting and sent in audition tapes from the sides. And there were so many personal anecdotal stories that came with those castings. You know, I think I was just gravitated to my grandfather, my grandmother, or my father, my mother were in these camps too. And, you know, thank you for sending me this, these sides. And I, I hope to hear back from you. And our cast, they're so talented. So many great people auditioned for this movie. You know, a production of our size we're not supposed to have authentic materials. We're not supposed to have authentic locations. We're not supposed to have this amount of talent, but there was something about this story. You know, there's, there's, there hasn't been a modern day reckoning of what the camps mean to the Japanese American community. Now, you know, we've seen stories in, in the fence, inside the fences. We've seen stories in that period. We we've had a million war movies, but still no 442nd masterpiece. I think what there's so many stories that are missing that people might just be eager to jump on to stuff like this. And that's how you get this amazing Japanese American ensemble that we did get. And, you know, every day people came to set and there was someone that either brought something of theirs that they wanted in the film and we put it right in that increased, you know, that's just our production value was just love. It was just personal. That adds a lot to it when it is a personal connection to a, a piece of history and a piece of your family history, for sure. I had the opportunity before the pandemic to direct the Journal of Ben Uchida, and I was really moved by so many stories from the actors who who had family members who were you know, forcibly incarcerated in these camps, and that deep connection is something that there's just so much more when you're, you know, deeply connected to the material in mm-hmm. such a personal way. I, I'm wondering too, you know, you have a main story being that this family, you know, is uncovering things that might have been buried in the backyard. And yeah, that can be a met- metaphor. But I've also heard uh, similar stories from Japanese American families here in in Oregon who buried things in the backyard because they had to really leave suddenly, you know, with the hope that they would be able to return to their property. Is this a story that was carried down in your family? No, this is this isn't something that that my family has, you know, this this story is, is fiction, but it's fiction in a way that it's taken from so much actual real life experience. It's in in my community and the way I grew up and, you know, growing up Japanese American, Shin Buddhist in Orange County, there's a large community that experienced a whole lot. 
So personally, from my family, you know, of course, there are things that I took and things that happened to us and that we did that are ripped straight from our reality. You know, I, I gave the example of my grandfather's real 442 jacket making it into the movie. But there was, you know, my bachan, who's also passed, she made it into the film in such a different way. You know, the movie opens on this, well, one of the opening shots is this slow push on a family portrait and it's on a white background and it's got the whole cast in there. And in the center is my actual bachan. We photoshopped her in. We kind of took, it's a family photo of ours that we took all of us out, replaced them with the actors. And she represents the actual bachan of the family. She represents Michi, the character that wrote these letters. And and our main character, Sue, is going back to try and figure out the truth of all that. So she's really in the movie with us. You know, my bachan's in this movie, my my jichan's in this movie. They're both passed and they've been passed for some years. But I think what you were saying, you were asking just about the realism in the film. And if this came from my life, well, I think a lot of it came from my life, but the actual plot of the story and what was happening, none of that is true to me, but I do hear that all the time from families that I I know of, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it makes sense too. Where do you leave, you know, especially, you know, things that are irreplaceable, you know, where Mm -hmm. do you leave them since you could only take two suitcases with you, uh, only what you can carry, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, Paul, this is your second feature film, and you're you're only thirty years old. Okay, I want to I want to tell you that's impressive. <laughs> that's very, very I'm thirty one. I'm thirty one. So, so, oh, you're thirty one now. Okay, well, that's impressive. still, but yeah, it's yeah. very impressive to have two feature length films, you know, under your belt. Yeah, you know, and it's also impressive if you don't mind me, you know, asking about this. And and stop me if if you don't want to talk about it. Is that you are a two time cancer survivor, first diagnosed when you were twenty five. Mm. So you've been actually making these films while dealing with this cancer and healing. Yeah, yeah. Would you talk about your journey a little bit? Sure. No, to making two feature films is an incredibly hard thing to do. I think to make a feature film on any scale requires a massive amount of resources. You know, you can make it on your iPhone and it could break you. It's enormous undertaking. And in step with that is getting diagnosed with leukemia is, uh, it's an extremely hard thing as well. Like I don't want to compare the two at all, but this is what I've been going through for the past six, seven years. Two cancer diagnoses, both leukemia. I had an initial diagnosis and then four years later uh, in 2020, I relapsed. And that was at the height of the pandemic. So the relapse was really tough. You know, I still am dealing with it today, but I am in remission now. I relapsed and had a bone marrow transplant. I did so much chemotherapy and uh, radiation treatments. And yeah, during that time, you know, especially in the beginning, I didn't really know how to, I didn't really know what to do with this information or how this was going to change my life. I just knew that, okay, things might be different, but you know, what changed first and immediately, I guess, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, even now it's too close to know, yeah. to write, you know, to talk truly outside of unbiased of what has happened to me. I will say though, that before I got cancer, I was working hard in the film industry and I was doing remote gigs and I was traveling to shoot and you know, it was very exciting. I had a lot of momentum 
and then cancer hit and I was just trapped in a room and not just trapped in the room, but if I left, I would, I would essentially die. You know, like I couldn't leave this place. And I spent that time healing and part of, part of the healing was just figuring out what I could do to stay creative, to stay sane, to like have my own voice, to have some agency. And I just started writing scripts and I started editing, uh, just, just fooling around. Just, I always loved editing, but I really got into it at that point. And eventually I wrote, I wrote a bunch of short scripts and we shot those. And then we, I wrote a feature length film and in between the chemotherapy treatments, I was able to find 28 days where we could shoot a full length feature film Wow! just in time to come back for, for more chemo. Wow. Yeah. And that was our first days. I mean, that's amazing because this, this, this film has a lot of locations and, you know, scenes. Mm -hmm. So it isn't like it's set in one house. (laughs) for the entire time right yeah i mean evergreen our first one was on the road we were traveling across cities every day and states and eventually countries you know we went from la to british columbia and we shot this entire road trip film it was a reaction to where i was i was stuck inside the room so i wrote a story about two characters just driving far away and getting to know each other and exploring that. Would you say as an artist that being able to work on your art form helped you in your healing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you got to do what you got to do in the hospital when you get cancer. You know, my cancer, every cancer is, is so different. For my cancer, the diagnosis was kind of in the air. I didn't know if it was 50-50, if it was 60-40, they no one gives you a straight answer, but it was definitely dangerous because I wasn't I wasn't like a, a child who has a, a very high success rate out of leukemia. As an adult and even as an older adult, it starts to go down quite a bit. And it showed because my cancer relapsed within 4 years. So it's still kind of treacherous. The relapse was extremely dangerous. It had spread to my spinal fluid and my brain. It was it was intense. It was pretty scary. Um, I really had to dig deep for that one. And it was at the height of the pandemic too. So I was completely isolated in the threat of COVID. I mean, I had patients next to me get COVID and die. And I was just doing what I can to stay out of that. But you know, I continued to write scripts and I wrote No No Girl and... You know, I got out of the hospital. I couldn't even really walk. I couldn't walk. I had a lot of, I was really weak from bone marrow transplant, radiation treatment. And, uh, and my fiance V, she had to help me, you know, up and down the stairs and across the street. My family was there too, but I started on the pre-production for Nono Girl. And I said, you know, six months from now in, in November, we're going to shoot this movie. And, uh, it was, it's, it's just, crazy. You know, when you get cancer, I really think you kind of get this ridiculous courage to just go for it. At least I did. And that's when I started writing emails out. First one uh, was to Chris Tashima, who I idolize and still do. And I told him about my situation and that I wrote this script and I just wanted to get kind of his feedback on it. And he read it and got back to me. 
And that was astounding. You know, Chris is an Oscar winning filmmaker and one of the only Japanese American people to ever win an Oscar. And he got back to me about it. And soon enough, he's, he wants to be a part of it. He's in the movie. Things are moving, casting, getting locations, getting production. And I'm, you know, walking on my own now and, and feeling stronger and being able to move better. And uh, yeah, and then in November, we shoot this movie. And it's just a gigantic Japanese ensemble production. And I'm strong, but not the strongest. Uh, the behind the set photos, my hair is coming back in really curly. Doesn't look like it does now. It's uh, I was definitely still recovering, but I made it happen with you know my amazing crew and my family, and the passion from all the creators in in the room that you know the actors and and the wardrobe and the set design and you know my sibling Lori who was a producer on the project and and donated her bone marrow to me and we worked side by side to make this movie possible. Yeah, I I thought your sister was pretty amazing too, you know, cuz that also is a a very painful procedure. So, um yeah, I wish you so much strength and healing still, you know. Um I also want to ask Chris, you know, what it was like for him as an Oscar winning, you know, filmmaker to watch you making this film, you know, knowing what he knows, you know. So, here's here's the audio of Chris Tashima. Dad told me one time that mom's family buried a bunch of stuff in their backyard before they were sent to camp. What? When did he say that? Long time ago. I didn't know it was true. Well, is it still there? I don't know. But mom's never mentioned it. We know there's old things in this family. They worked hard to keep that in the past. This film, you know, is the voice of a new generation. It's, it's the ne next generation beyond me. I'm Sansei, third generation, and Paul is Yonsei. So, you know, this is the next generation's voice, and we really haven't heard that at all in theater or film. It's extremely rare, and to me it was very gratifying because knowing that that generation is vested in this history and that cares enough to create works about it it's really meaningful to me. I think that's how, you know, it affects me personally. My generation's always written about stories set in camp, you know, about the, the Nisei when they were young adults and what it was like in camp and to go through that experience. Post-war, the period after camp is, has written, been written about a little bit, known as resettlement, but, you know, that's the years immediately following the war and families trying to assimilate back into society you know, this is really a unique voice. It's a new voice and, you know, one that I found really refreshing. You know, knowing Paul's story of beating cancer twice, it, it's really hard for me to grasp that because I, I've never really faced anything like that. And it's hard enough for me to try to make films, you know, forget about having to battle cancer. So it became a project I, I had to try to support however I could because of Paul's journey. You know, it didn't even have to do with stories about Japanese Americans and, and stories about camp. It's just this guy, you know, all that he's been through and he's wanting to make films. So as a fellow filmmaker, I'm like, you know, gosh, I'm gonna do anything I can to help him. But in terms of, you know, myself 
who I am and the, the type of films that I've made. And, um, you know, it, it was really great to watch Paul work and to be working with him because, you know, he's, he's, he's really a great filmmaker. I'll just put it that way. And so, you know, any, any great filmmaker is, it's inspiring to be around. You know, I learn from him. Um, you learn from any good filmmaker watching them and, and working with them. Paul's way of making films is, is very intimate, I'll say. You know, he works with a very tight crew that he's worked with before, and he has, you know, very strong communication with and working relationships with. And because it's so small, it's extremely fast. And, you know, that's the thing you fight all the time when you're making films is you're fighting time. So to have this guy, you know, with such a clear vision, being able to just kind of barrel through things so quickly and efficiently and artistically, you know, it was it was a great experience to work with Paul. This is an incredibly smooth shoot, a really great crew, just really great people to be around. Everyone's pitching in, doing all kinds of things, you know, doing double, triple duty and more. So, you know, it was actually, it was a learning experience for me. I think anytime you work with a great filmmaker, it's it, it can be a learning experience and this was really uh, a joy. I, I want to get back to the film itself, No, No Girl, and what it's been like for you, because you've been touring this film, mostly in California. What what has been the reaction of the film and, and when you've been screening it? I can't believe the type of reaction we've been getting out of our audiences. You know, I can't even believe that we are on this road trip, like nationwide tour of the film. You know, we, we premiered at the Japanese American National Museum. And within 20 minutes of posting the tickets online, they sold out. You know, our production is not that big. We, we aren't like a big enough movie to be in theaters all around the country. We can only do a little bit at a time. We had one week at the Lemley Theater in Glendale and a thousand people came to see the movie in one week. It blew my mind. And every time people walk out of the film, you know, they're showing real emotion. They're having a real emotion, emotional reaction to this film. And it sounds kind of weird to, to say that, but as a filmmaker or even just any artist, to see someone reacting to your work in a way that you react when you put it down, you know, that I think it's such a huge, for me, it was a huge accomplishment, but also I just didn't expect it. And it means so much, especially because the reactions are so many times this happened to my family or, or even there have been people who are in the camps that have shown up to the theater to watch this film, telling me, saying things like, thank you. You know, I just can't believe it. And now we're being hosted by all these different organizations and groups and theaters and, and they're bringing us out to their communities because, you know, we made an impact in, in LA and Orange County and people are hearing about it, I guess. Well, I think there's a great need to keep talking about this history so that it's not forgotten. And also so many of the survivors, there's fewer and fewer, you know, all the time. I mean, it struck me when a couple lines in your film, he said, nearly a hundred years ago, and I went, whoa, you know, it's like 80 years, but still we, or it's getting towards, it won't be too long before it is a hundred years. Yeah, yeah, that that's important to remember this history. So I'm glad that there's such a a turnout for it and request for it. 
I also have to imagine, too, seeing it with an audience, there's some comedic moments in there, which is really yeah. needed, you know, because there's so much um, dark history. But but I, I really uh, have to imagine that they really like that part a lot. I can't write a tragedy without the comedy. You know, everyone knows they go hand in hand. It's the classic, like, Greek faces. You know, it's always comedy and drama. I think a lot of it, too, is just our actors just handled it so well. They can be so funny. And in my life and in the story of our Yonsei protagonist, there's just a lot of silliness. You know, we don't we don't live every morning waking up going, the American government took from <laughs> us what we will never get back. You know, we're not we're not living this trauma and breathing it day in and day out. We just kind of it's just a part of us now. You know, we have moved on and we are living our life with it. But the things that our characters touch on in the film and the things that they uncover, you know, it's their history and their identity and also having to talk to their parents and also having to just be kids. It it juggles a lot. And I really think the humor in there, it allows for some more honesty. It allows for the truth that, that I believe, you know, the things that I feel. It helps bring the seriousness of the dramatic moments, but also levity that I think is is so appropriate when talking about something that happened almost 100 years ago. Well, it really is an honor that you chose to spend your Remembrance Day, February 19th in Portland, for the screening of your film. Of course. I'm sure you had a lot of requests for that particular day, especially. Yeah. You know, there, there's a lot of organizations that want to tie in the film to their Day of Remembrance, but I, I, everyone can have a piece of it. I don't, I don't <laughs> mind. I just won't be able to be there because I'll be in Portland with you guys. That's wonderful. Yeah, we're, we're going to be in Stockton the day before, so it's going to be a mad dash. We're fitting a lot into the weekend, but mm. I, will, I am so honored to be, you know, I never considered myself someone, a community, you know, I always like kept my Japanese American pride. Like I'm Hapa, but I identify as Japanese American so much because, you know, I, I look, I look Asian and I've been treated Asian, you know, it's just hard as a Hapa. You don't really know which camp you belong in, but I, I, I fully identify as a Japanese American and, and, you know, I lived this lifestyle growing up Japanese American Buddhist community playing Asian basketball and stuff, but I've never heard the term Asian basketball. Yeah, oh man, it gets what's the difference between Asian basketball and you know, other basketball? I don't know. Do you have that up north in Southern California? I've never heard of it. I think it's a California thing because you have more numbers than we do here. Maybe (laughs) I don't know. I'll ask around though. I also don't play basketball, so I don't know much about it. You know, I don't know if it's okay, but we, I don't know. It's like there's these leagues. We, I played in Sayo, and you know, there's no rule that says, uh, we you have to be Asian American, but. Somehow everyone is Asian American. Who's yeah. playing basketball? <laughs> Just in the sale league, you know, yeah. But yeah. I, That's interesting. Yeah. If there was um, sale baseball too. I was really bad at that though. Yeah. I don't know what that is either. <laughs> it's like Asian league baseball. Okay. Yeah. Well, see, I learned something new. I, I, I'm going to look it up after we talk. Asian basketball. So what's ahead for you? I know you're, you've got these screenings, so you're doing a tour. Is that pretty much what you're focused on? Yeah, right now we are in the middle of kind of uh, a tour up California and into Oregon throughout 
February and March. I mean, we're going to Austin, Texas next week, and then we'll be in Sacramento, and then Portland, Eugene. Uh, we're going to Washington, D.C., and uh, back to San Francisco again. I mean, it just keeps on coming in. And like I said, I, I cannot believe that it's having this kind of traction, this movie. But I think people people are really responding to it. And every screening, we do a, a Q&A after or I hang out afterwards and I meet everyone. So many people are coming up with just these personal stories of their family and and quoting lines from the movie and saying things scenes from the movie this is this is so true to me oh and, wow yeah and it, it, exactly right i can't believe it that's so deeply personal and meaningful you know yeah when yeah. you connect like that especially because i wouldn't have written it if it wasn't so true to me as well so it's not just a validation of the movie but like a validation of what I live through an experience in my life. You know, I, I, I know I have the validation from my friends and my family and, you know, everyone from Asian basketball, but to see it <laughs> in the wider community, especially about something where, you know, I was saying earlier, I never really thought of myself as someone who is so like a community forward person. Like, you know, we have these people in our lives that we're so proud to know of them because they, they exemplify this really, they'll stand up for us in, in the Japanese American community and make waves and make, make just prioritize being cultural, being historical and, and preserving history. I don't consider myself one of those people. I think I made a movie that spoke that I wanted to tell, you know. Yeah. Well, Paul, it's so great to talk with you. I'm going to give the uh, info about the event. The The Portland chapter of JCL will host a screening of No No Girl on the Day of Remembrance, February 19th, the day that removed Japanese Americans from their homes and incarcerated them in 1942 during World War II. The film screening is followed by an interview with Paul and actors Chris Tashima and Mika Jo, who played the lead character. And that's February 19th, 2023 at 1.30 p.m. at Lincoln Recital Hall at Portland State University. The event is free and open to the public, but you got to register. So more info at pdxjacl.org. And I have that info on, on our pages, too. Director Paul Daisuke Goodman, it was so great to talk with you and to meet you and to hear your story. And I wish you continued health and creativity. Thank you so much, Jimmy. This was an amazing, amazing afternoon. I could talk to you for a long time. So thank you for joining me today. You can find links to Paul's film and JCL at stageandstudio.org or orartswatch.org. And that's it for Stage and Studio. Till the next conversation, I'm Dime Lowe Roberts. Roberts.